politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots and American taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here on this final day of the month of October. Yes, it is Halloween, Um, although in politics, every day is Halloween for those of us who do not have a political party that represents us. For those of us who truly are independent conservatives, which I would venture to say is most Americans live conservative lives. They might not realize it, but everything they do is built on meritocracy, common sense, not on race, identity, political correctness. Um, But that is endemic of the left, but the phony right party, the Republican Party, the phony conservative movement has really internalized much of that. Um, Gosh, I'm in a bad mood with Washington winning. Washington always wins. Perhaps it's a metaphor with the Nationals beating the Astros, you know, a Texas team, D.C. beating Texas, Um, pink Texas blue. I don't know. It's just sort of a a foreboding metaphor there. Um, The Swamp always wins. So the Nationals won last night. Uh, I don't know if we have any Nationals fans in this audience, but I just felt that was very foreboding that they always seem to be winning. People often ask me, why do they win? An interesting question that was asked of me Tuesday night when I gave a speech at uh, Republicans Women Women's Club in Manhattan. And someone in the audience asked me at the end of the speech, we had some Q&A, she asked, or I think actually this was a, a male. He asked me, why is it that we had the worst border invasion for about 12 months under President Trump? I mean, this happened... You know, not under Hillary. This happened under Trump. And what I went on to explain to people is I said, look, everyone is so focused on the daily soap opera with Trump and the anti-Trump. And if you look at the fact that the left has won in the culture, they've won in demographics, they've won in law, they've won in the courts, they've won in the bureaucracies, they've run, they've won in the states. And then they've won in the sense that they've gotten Republicans and phony conservative movement people to think along their racial political correctness agenda to some varying degree. It doesn't matter who is president. Um, They won everything. So they're going to win over his personnel, and especially with a guy like Trump. And this is a big reason why I have no interest in focusing on impeachment. The big story today is the resolution of impeachment. And there's really nothing to say on that anymore. Um, With nothing new going on there, the Democrats are going to milk it in the House. The Senate's not going to bite. But the reality is, as I've noted before, what is going on in our civilization, the destruction of our civilization on so many levels, whether it's security and culture, um, it's so much greater than anything going on that everyone in, in my business is focused on. And they're going to keep winning and they're they're continuing. Everyone's like, oh, well, we got to combat impeachment. But the irony is they're impeaching all of us. They're not going to succeed in, in convicting Trump in the Senate, at least. But they're successfully impeaching all of us. They're impeaching our, our traditional values. They're impeaching our criminal justice system. They're impeaching our borders. And they're winning every day. So why not kill two birds with one stone? Why not have the president and whatever Republican is willing to listen actually pursue an aggressive agenda on crime, an aggressive agenda on sovereignty and accentuate the radicalism of the Democrats so that every day the issue is related to the Democrats and how radical they are, not on impeachment, where you're not really going to score points on that. Which is why I'm going to continue focusing on this. And for today, the discussion really is The reason why we're losing is because the left has successfully enshrined, enmeshed, embedded their agenda. Every important political and legal agenda they have in race and identity. And they know that is the kryptonite of the Republican Party and the established phony conservative movement. That like a bunch of barking dogs, they shout racism and Republicans are like, oh, no, no. And and, and they just... 
they drop it, even though they're winning issues. I thought one of the most amazing things today, one of the most amazing pieces of news that I've seen is that there's a pullout that has Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, likely the most conservative governor in America. He is at a 71% approval rating. 56% of Democrats approve of him. 72% of Hispanics, even though he is the one who pushed the statewide ban on sanctuaries. Because guess what? Most people support it. Yet Republicans will not take a single vote on this. We have another case of a child molester, illegal alien let go by a sanctuary in North Carolina. Nate Madden will have the article out at Conservative Review today. And Republicans will not vote on this. And yes, there's the donor issue. Yes, there's money, cheap labor. But if you look at every issue where the Democrats are transforming our society, it's race or identity. So whether it's the homosexual, transgender, alphabet soup agenda, whether it's crime, whether it's illegal immigration, it's all that. And Republicans think, oh my gosh, we're going to lose with uh, the demographics, the demographics. And really, I mean, it's, it will eventually become that way. But most people, and including usually from that demographic that they're hiding behind, live a common sense life. Most people want to be safe. Most people want fairness. Uniform rule of law. It's an elite thing, but this elite thing has captured every major Republican. I got onto this really from yesterday's show, and if you haven't listened to it, you really should. Uh, we had on, on the show Heather McDonald, really the only good academic on our side on crime, but she also covers and she's written books on diversity and the whole racial agenda. And if you notice, listen to the show very carefully. I know some of you have sent me uh, messages that you even listened to the show twice. She's one of those people who, when they speak, it's almost on multiple levels. There's such profundity to their words. And she gave us a lot of information on what's going on with homelessness and drugs and crime and the war on cops. We really covered a lot in those 45 minutes yesterday. But what I found amazing is the deep philosophy that she spoke about. And she kept really mentioning that it's race and demographics. That's what's driving all of this. It's you know, you know, to the point where even police chiefs who served their life in, in, in law enforcement and recognize the danger in these lies about crime and, and the war on cops, the demographics are controlling everything. And the perceived need to, to do racial pandering, that trumps everything. It was amazing. She kept using the word demographics. I found that very fascinating. How... You know, we've often talked about the de-civilization agenda. If you look at what the left is successfully doing on so many issues, it's not even liberal anymore. What I grew up with in the 90s, early 2000s with the Democrats, they were liberal. They were very liberal. This is to the point where there is de-civilization. And what she was mentioning is that there are certain ways that you keep, you know, people's negative proclivities in check with proper, proper social compacts. And that was never under assault until recently. Certain basic understandings that, you know, you can't live out on the street. You can't have a man being a woman and a woman being a man. You can't, um, you know, just be okay with rampant drug and criminal behavior. Yeah, that's what's happening now. Why? If you listen, if you listen carefully to Heather's words yesterday, Everything the left does is enmeshed in race and identity. That, that, that's what gets us. They change the demographics. They perceive that we're changing it. And then Republicans are like, oh my gosh, I can't do anything. This is why I have no faith in the whole legal system. And we're going to get to this. Oh, in these Republican appointed judges. Because guess what? Every case, whether it's, whether it's um, you know, social values for sure, um, affirmative action, election law, immigration, criminal cases. It's all enmeshed in identity politics, either the transgender yada yada agenda or in, in race. And they're too scared of it. 
And they're stupid for being scared of it. Remember Ron DeSantis? They were like, that guy's a bigot and white supremacist because um, his opponent ran like a race baiting campaign and he shoved it right back in his face. Didn't run from it. And, and, and it's funny watching these like establishment conservative commentators like, wow, I never would have thought Ron DeSantis would have a 71% approval rating. Well, yeah, when you speak truth to power and you're willing to tell the truth, people appreciate it. They know you're not being hateful. They know you are being truthful and they know you are applying the law equally and that's it. But Republicans are scared of this. So I want to start off with the first thing our article from yesterday, a lot of you have seen this, but I want to go over it. A record 67.3 million people in this country, according to new census data called by Stephen Camerata of uh, the Center for Immigration Studies, 67.3 million people speak a language other than English at home. I want you to think about that. 67.3 million. That is a population larger than France. That is roughly 22% of our entire country. Now, that's everywhere. That includes Wyoming and Alaska, right? Where you don't have that many immigrants. Some places, it's even more. In nine states, it's over, it's over um, 25%. In seven states, it's over 30%. In California, 45% of all people Speak a foreign language other than English at home. Obviously, you drill down to some counties, it's 60%, 70%. Texas. Talk about Texas being defeated by Washington. What greater metaphor than uh, Texas? 36% of Texas residents speak a language other than English at home. New Mexico, 34%. New Jersey, 32%. New York and Nevada, 31 each. Florida, 30 Arizona and Hawaii, 28%. Each. You look at the top five largest cities in America. Again, we, we discuss a lot with crime in LA, New York, Chicago. Well, there's a reason. Because they, you know, they have scared everyone off with the demographic change. 48% of the combined population of the five largest cities in America the residents speak a language other than English at home. It's uh, 49% of New York City, 59% of LA, 36% of Chicago. And guess what? Houston is 50%. Much more than New York City, Houston. So you want to know what's happening to Texas? Well, that's part of it. Phoenix is 38%. Would have thought that Houston would be more than, than Phoenix. Um. This transformation is rapid. And you can't have a country like that. Obviously, if you're an immigrant, you know, usually you're going to be speaking a foreign language at home, even if you could speak English in public. But this is just a measure of how much of it you have. You can't have that much. The numbers matter. And the trajectory, it's happening very rapid. So in other words, the number of foreign language speakers has tripled since 1980 has doubled since 1990 and even since um 2010 it's ballooned so since 1980 the foreign speaking population has grown seven times as fast as the native born population but even since 2010 when the foreign born population already has grown so much right so the bigger part of the pie you are the harder it is to expand quickly as a percentage it still has grown twice as fast as the native born population just over the past eight years I mean, you look down the road 10, 20, 30 years from now, these numbers will be insane. And, and, and there's a bipartisan agreement in both parties that we don't have enough. Today, Mike Lee is voting on his to bring in 300,000 more Indians and green cards for entry level computer jobs. This is Mike Lee's passion. There's no understanding of this. America is more than a spreadsheet on a corporate balance sheet. You got to have a nation. We're not into nationalism. We're into patriotism. It's not blood and soil. It's, it's family. It's liberty. It's community. But you have to have a country to preserve those values. 
And you reach a point, you could debate where the gray area is, but we've crossed this line by a mile. You know, and then and then again, there's one thing. See, imagine if you have, let me just make up for, you know, analogy for a moment. You have a melting pot and, you know, you just transform 40% of it. So there's one thing if that 40% that's new in itself is broken up by 10 different equal components. So nothing kind of overpowers more than others. It's still more of a melting pot. But as you all know, the overwhelming majority is Spanish. Spanish is supplanting English. So roughly, what is this, like 63% of all foreign-born speakers, foreign language speakers at home are um, Spanish speakers. There are now in this country, where's the numbers here? There are now um, 62% of the pot there, about 41, 42 million Spanish speakers. There are more Spanish speakers in America than in Spain. There's more Spanish speakers in America than in any Latin American country except for Mexico, Colombia, and Argentina. Chinese is obviously the number two, growing very quickly at 3.5 million. We spoke about the espionage problems. There's a lot of wonderful Chinese immigrants, but you know we have that problem as well. And then there's the trajectory that some of the fastest growing languages are the Arabic ones. The number of Arabic speakers has grown 46% over the past eight years and has doubled since 2000. The number of Bengali speakers from Bangladesh, all Muslim, has grown 68% since, since 2010 and has tripled since 2000. As I said in my article, it's a testament to the rapid growth of Muslim immigration since 9 11. Brilliant idea. I mean, could we have at least kept it? The same. But I mean, this is what it's at. And the left is unambiguous. It's all a racial agenda. It's a war on whites. There is an unrelenting war on whites in America. And we didn't start this. We didn't embrace it. We didn't make it. But Republicans, because of that, they didn't want to talk about it. Well, it's not my fault. The answer is to have sane policies, irrespective of what racial outcome there is. Th this is good for immigration. This is good for crime. This is what we should do. You don't look at the racial numbers, but the left does. So we have to respond to that. But I'm just telling you, if you want to know why they're scared, this is their kryptonite, race or identity. We'll link to this article. There's a lot of information in there. But it's like, even today, still most people love the English language. Most people do speak English and they don't want it attenuated. Most people are overwhelmingly for making English the official language. And this would mean codifying it in terms of government business programs and grants, taking away all these mandates on states with bilingual ballots. In 1996, the House of Representatives passed overwhelmingly a bill that would have repealed the requirement to offer bilingual ballots. Never passed the Senate. Why don't Republicans bring that to the, to the floor? Because this speaks to the lie of what they're doing. Their whole thing is everyone's American. Daniel, these people are more American than you. We're not even, when you're talking about bilingual ballots, by definition, you're not talking at the immigrant level. You're talking at the naturalized citizen level. So what are we talking about here? Naturalized citizens who have gone through that process who don't know enough English to even read a ballot, it doesn't take that much. Filling in the bubbles, the names are, I mean, you hear them all, all, all over the news. There's not much to read there. I mean, if you're not proficient enough in the English language at the naturalization stage to fill out a ballot, then you shouldn't have been naturalized. There's something wrong there. And, you know, one of the things I always mention in the data that is more important than anything is that 45% of those speaking foreign languages at home were born in the US. So it's not just, okay, fresh off the boat type of thing. It's, it, it's a measure of we're not even assimilating over time. Okay, then he might tell me, Daniel, okay, but these are exclusively people who, they're, they're totally assimilating, they can speak English, but they're speaking, their children speaking a foreign language to their immigrant parents at home. 
And that certainly happened historically in the Great Wave. That was very common. But no. And, and this is two years old. This is from their Camerata's study two years ago. I, I didn't see this data point on this report. I'm sure it's only grown. But I could tell you as of 2017, 18.7 million, 18.7 million of those who speak foreign languages at home are native-born adults. So it's not children, foreign or native-born, speaking to their immigrant parents in a foreign language who don't know English. It's native-born adults. Again, that demonstrates the salad bowl dynamic we're talking about and the velocity and intensity of the constant waves from the same places reinforcing themselves, something we've never done to this extent. According to Migration Policy Institute, 77% uh, of the millions of school-age children enrolled in limited English proficiency programs, these ELL programs, 77% of them are native-born. So yes, you know, everyone's going to talk about, oh, you're Daniel, your great-great-grandparent spoke German or Yiddish or whatever, this person spoke Italian or whatever, Polish. But here's the deal. Yes, you know, by definition, immigrants who came in, they, um, they, they spoke foreign languages, but what you never had was their American-born children. No. And then turning into American-born adults speaking a foreign language. They did not need to be in ELL programs, um, the children of the Great Wave who were born in America. 77% of those enrolled in them now are American-born. There's something wrong with that. This is one of the serious differences between the past. And again, not to mention the fact that the world was very different. Um, the way the world was set up is if you weren't in an English-speaking country, you just didn't speak English. It, just very, it was very rare. Very few people did. The world is very different now. English is like the official global language, and, and most educated people in first-world countries do speak um, English. You know, In places like Europe and Israel, they, they speak English um, to varying degrees. It's accented, obviously, but they speak English. Um, so again, when we have such record high immigration, it makes sense at this juncture in history to put a premium to that, that look, when there's so many educated folks all over the world that do speak English, why should we bring in the ones who don't? It just, just makes sense. This is a such a winning issue. You pull, I mean, this is the clear dichotomy. Like with Ron DeSantis and... Um, even Hispanic voters and Democrat voters in Florida being so popular, even though he's regarded by the establishment as a racist. The, 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 the gulf between the average Democrat voter and the elite, even conservative figure in Washington. They, we know this is a winning issue. You, you speak to your neighbor like, hey, shouldn't we all agree that, I mean, everything should be done in English, shouldn't have bilingual ballots. I mean, even if you're for more immigration, but your whole point is that, oh, they're like us. They're learning English. I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't they know enough English at the naturalization level to fill out a ballot in English? I, I'm telling you, 90% of Republicans view that as like white supremacism or somehow. Like, oh my God, you can't do that. That's the problem. And Democrats know it. This is how they get away with it. And mark my words, they're, they're rapidly transforming other places. Even though in the sheer numbers, it's the, you know, New York and California and the Southwest, Texas, that's, you know, gotten this. But if you look at the trajectories over the last 10 or so years, the fastest growing foreign language speaking states as a percentage. It's Nevada since 1980, up 1,088%. Georgia, up 952%. North Carolina, up 802%. Virginia, up 488%. So it's no wonder why... These states have either turned blue, turned purple. Georgia's in the process of being turned purple. That's why. But guess what's close behind that? Tennessee, Arkansas, and South Carolina. Even Idaho and Oklahoma is, ranks high. In absolute numbers, it's still not tremendous yet, but that, that's where, um, you know, that's where North Carolina and certainly Nevada was over the re, you know, last few decades. This is where we're headed. I mean, when you look at articles like this, how do you even go on from anything? This is our whole being, the English language. 
It's unbelievable. Totally unbelievable. But let me let me move on. And, and by the way, there, there's an article out yesterday. Um, we spoke about Worthington, Minnesota, being so fundamentally transformed with uh, refugees from the meatpacking plants and the legal aliens uh, funneling in their, their, their children who are then resettled as refugees on our dime in a circuitous cartel smuggling operation. You know, there was an article out I saw, I can't remember where it was, but um, I, I think because they're having another vote on expanding the schools there. And local news reported that it has one of the highest concentrations of Spanish speakers in Minnesota. So, you know, this is happening in all 50 states. But Republicans, and this has nothing to do with race. I mean, there's people that are black that come from Jamaica or other English-speaking countries. Um, it has nothing to do with race. It's not a white or black or whatever issue. It's, it's just, it's, and everyone recognizes that. Everyone understands it's common sense, language, culture, public charge, you know. These are simple concepts that the average person gets, but Republicans are terrified because Democrats have made it racial and Republicans are scared of it. I just don't care. Like we had with Heather McDonald, you cannot have a situation with criminal justice where there is so much crime among blacks that we're just going to say, look, because they happen to be black, we have to dismantle criminal justice. We have to, no, you can't do that. I just don't care. It's too dangerous. I'm not going to back down because of that. I'm going to double down on it. And again, the reality is most people, including blacks, are not criminals. So the people you're going to harm the most are, guess what? Blacks. But it's like, this is, this is what people don't understand. Um, going back to the, to the language issue, I, um, I recently had over uh, a couple, um, a family, we, we've, we've become friends, moved in recently, fairly recently. We had them over for a meal, and I knew his parents um, were immigrants from Russia. Um, and he was telling me a little bit more about it. They came in 1981, which is an important benchmark because it was before the collapse. And what he, what he, and then this was him. He was speaking. He said something very interesting. That what you see is there's a huge difference between, and and, and he talked also about those that went to Israel, those that migrated from Russia to Israel. And particularly there, he was talking about the difference between those who came before the collapse and after the collapse. And what he was talking about is, you know, a lot of the ones before were the people with Sharansky and the Refuseniks. They were like, they believed. It was, it was political. It was a cause. Whereas afterwards, a lot of it, it became economic. And, and putting Russia aside, that, that's really where much of the immigration going on right now is like that. It's that you have a bunch of really crappy third world countries that are engaged in Islamic civil wars or other problems in Central America. And yeah, I don't blame them. They want to come here, but they want to come here because it's more peaceful, economically, welfare. Do you love America for what it stood for? Some of them inevitably do, but overwhelmingly, it's not like that anymore. And that's what he was lamenting. And so it was interesting. I, I asked him, I said, hey, you know, like, do you know any Russian at all? Like, you know, just I was kind of interested in that. And he actually told me, he said he doesn't know a word of Russian, even though his parents immigrated from there. I don't know, maybe a few years before he was born here in uh, in Boston. And he told me his parents, I mean, they wouldn't have it. They, they, they like banned this sp the speaking sp uh, speaking Russian. They, to them, it was a symbol of the communists. They loved Reagan and everything. I mean, that's what we had. But, I mean, use your imagination. Out of the million immigrants and the, the million, uh, another million foreign students and 700,000 more workers and other temporary visas, what percentage are like that family? The old Cubans, the old Refuseniks from Russia, certainly the Great Wave era. How many are like that? So, to, to a large degree, some of it's not even their fault. America is not American anymore. I mean, the native population is, you know, post-modernism, post-American. So there's not much for them to assimilate into. But the worst thing you can do is, while America's inherent native culture is weak, to go and just carte blanche flood the country like that. I mean, 
that's the fall of Rome. I mean, you're, you're, you're done. But again, Republicans and phony conservatives will not fight it because of the racial innuendo. But Ron DeSantis, I mean, is, is, is a testament to, um, to how, to, how to do it right. I know I'm going to anger some Trump fans here, but, you know, there's a part of me that wish, wishes we could swap him out for Ron DeSantis in 2020. I mean, he's serious, he's consistent, he's on message, and uh, whatever, we just can't have nice things. But anyway, I want to touch on something to really drive home this point and tie it into the courts and the legal system. One of the many, many reasons why we say that these Trump appointees, these Federalist Society, conservative, libertarian, legal movement people are never, look, they'll be better than what the Democrats will appoint, but they're not going to be an equal and opposing um, force to push back even recent bad precedent on legal issues, much less longstanding harmful ones. One of the major reasons is because of race and identity. Because if you think about it, everything they do, it's enmeshed in one of them. Look at any major legal issue that becomes constitutional, that becomes political in the courts that we care about, whether it's abortion, whether it's marriage, whether it's you know the whole homosexual agenda, that's obviously all identity, whether it's affirmative action, disparate impact, crime, immigration, it all, the left has made it about civil rights, about race. So you are forced to confront it and say, look, we are for the equal application of the rule of law. Here's what the Constitution says. It doesn't matter what the party is. There is no right to this, period. Intellectually, most of these people agree with it. But in practice, Clarence Thomas is the only one. So you'll have cases, and there's been cases where there's like 60 years of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act's jurisprudence. And Clarence Thomas, I'm thinking of a specific case from a couple of years ago, I can't remember the name of it, where he basically said, well, frankly, our entire 60 years of jurisprudence of this is a fiction and it's made up and it needs to be reversed. But notwithstanding that, like that's how Clarence Thomas just doesn't care. But I'm here to tell you that 90% of them do care. And we saw it even with Alito on a criminal case. Alito is terrific. He's sometimes even more hardcore than Thomas on criminal cases. But there was one case where Thomas was alone. Alito wrote like a one-page concurrence. They were, they were saying that the jury pool was racist and um, prosecutor was racist in Alabama. This case where they let go this like mass murderer um, who was convicted seven times and they kept you know overturning the death penalty. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the case. I, I spoke about it on the show in June when it came out. But even Alito, Alito was like, this case is different. But he didn't really explain it. And it was very clear. It was so racially tinged. He was just too scared. So there's a case, Bank of America Court v. City of Miami, I want to talk about. But I first want to just um, preface it with, with this point. That's I know I'm going to bother some people. And I know maybe I'm being too nitpicky. And maybe... Maybe I'm being too harsh here, but I think the point is true anyway, whether it's a fair rip on him. So yesterday, many of you saw that there was a whole dust up with the Senate Judiciary Republicans and the American Bar Association, the ABA, over their rating of this Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals nominee from the Trump administration, Lawrence Van Dyke, uh, where they rated him as not qualified. And this has been a whole fight for years where basically the ABA controls the legal profession, which is one of the many reasons why we're never going to win. And finally, 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 50 years too late, Senate Judiciary Republicans are like, look, we've had enough of this. And um, we're not going to use your ratings anymore. We don't care. We don't care. Now, I would argue that's a no brainer. I mean, you should have been doing that years ago. They need to go a step further and going after the whole accreditation cartel and the whole the fact that the whole concept of a bar, that the ABA controls who's a lawyer. I mean, I've had very high-ranking, famous people tell me they're scared to you know, say, speak out more, even as a political appointee, against judicial supremacism because they're scared they're going to be disbarred. Well, who's the ABA? Why should a private organization control that? 
well, more than a conservative organization. So if you're going to treat them like a left-wing political hack group, which Josh Hawley and Mike Lee rightfully said, we should go a step further and, and just say, hey, we need to go after the whole system. But I digress. Anyway, um, they believe because this guy is a Christian, so they rated him as not qualified because they said they don't think he could be, you know, these interviewed people and they, they don't think they could, that he could be impartial against LGBTQFYUFUCK, uh, dollar sign, whatever, um, community. So, and they said, we don't have the confidence from interviewing him that he could be fair. Josh Hawley, in order to beat up on the ABA, asked Van Dyke the following question. And I want you to see his reaction. Listen to this clip here. Um, the letter also says that you would not commit uh, to being fair to litigants before you, notably members of the LGBTQ community. Can you speak to that? Did you, did you say that you wouldn't be fair to members of the LGBT community? Senator, I, that was... Um... That was the part of the letter. I did not say that. I apologize. It's all right. I'm sorry. No, I did not say that. I do not believe that. It is a fundamental belief of mine that all people are created in the image of God. They should all be treated with dignity and respect. Now, look, I don't mean to be harsh here. I found that to be a little bit bizarre, um, a little bit bizarre. And, and, and look, I feel bad for him. And it could be the emotion was coming out, not so much for his love and affinity of Q Americans and this whole sexual licentious agenda, but more of the fact that maybe he was just run through the ringer in the mud by the ABA and just his emotions generally came out. But I, I, when I first saw the clip, I didn't see Josh Hawley's question, what precipitated. I just saw clips of him um, sobbing. Um, and and I, I don't think that was put on. I, I think that was real. I think he really felt that way. I, I think that was raw emotion. And I was like, in my mind, I thought, like, I was thinking, well, what precipitated that? I thought, like, Hawley must have read something from the left accusing him of like maybe he had german heritage or something and your grandfather was a nazi or something and like you know participated in genocide i mean that that's his emotion really like almost reflected something like that and then i then i listened to it and i heard like he said oh you know they're saying that you won't be partial to the lgbtq because of course we always have to use their language and i was like i don't know if it were me it's like Oh my God, no, I love the LGBTQ. Like, no, I mean, I, I, someone who really shares our values, I mean, in my view, would have answered very defiantly and said like, look, what they mean by that is this. They mean that they're the ones who want to base everything on race and identity. So you have someone who wants to create new rights for identity at the expense of unalienable rights I am the ultimate fair judge because I don't look at identity. To me, the negative, and I would have gone, launched into a whole dissertation into what's a real negative unalienable right and what's a positive privilege and say, hey, what they mean is very simply, bake the, bake the, bake the darn cake that they want a right because of their identity to force someone to violate his conscience with his private property and have you engage in involuntary servitude for something he disagrees with. Well, conscience and property on our unalienable rights demanding the employment and service of another private company is not an unalienable right. So it's, I'm the ultimate fair person. I don't care if you're a, um, pick another identity horsing around. Someone who wants to marry a horse. You know, let's say someone who, who is married to a horse and I find that repugnant. But if he comes before me with a bankruptcy case, case uh, um, a uh, criminal case, 
I'm going to look at the law of what that is. I mean, I we don't judge identity. They're the ones judging identity. That is the answer that needs to be given. I, I don't see like what is so, what's sort of sob about? Like you're accused of participating in genocide or something. You don't like the cues. But I'm just telling you, this is the kryptonite of, of conservatives and Republicans. Most of my colleagues have bought into this. I, I said to a friend yesterday, it's like, this was a legitimate good fight, a righteous fight over the ABA. But it's like a fight over what? We're fighting over crumbs. We've already agreed to 95% of the other side's premise. So it's like, oh no, I'm LGBTQ compliant. No, I am. The ABA is wrongly accusing me of not being LGBTQ, FU, oh, compliant. I mean, in a couple of years, we're going we're gonna to have a point where like, <clears throat> and by, I promise you, this is a thing. There's a thing called trans con like trans conservatives now. See, the left is attacking a trans conservative. Like as if like that's a thing now. We we champion that. This is a black conservative. This we're, we're the only thing worse than than left wing racial pandering is is con conservative racial pandering um, or identity pandering. But like somehow like oh so we believe in that. I, I mean I, I guess I never got the memo that that's part of conservatism. We believe in in uh, castration. I, I I guess I didn't know that. Um, I thought we believed that was sinful, immoral behavior, but I, I, I guess I was, you know, born a long time ago. Not. Um, <laughs> but but that that's the thing. I mean, I haven't changed my views. I haven't evolved from the last 15, 20 years. If anything, I'm more militant because of their repugnant behavior. They're even more disgusting. I mean, and this is what bothers me. It's like no one's persecuting them. They're the ones persecuting us. They're the ones on the offense with the rainbow jihad. We're minding our own business. I don't feel like I need to cry and have raw emotion over like, oh, get all defensive about it. Go on offense. Like, th this is what bothers me. But anyway, we're going to have a time where, like, we'll have an openly, like, balls-cutting trans-originalist nominee to the Ninth Circuit. Okay, the ABA will come and say, I'm concerned he's not properly pro-trans. And Republicans will be like, you're attacking a trans-conservative. I mean, this is, this is where we're headed. This is what it means to be a conservative now. I mean... If you, it's emblematic of everything. We're basically, whether it's at a legal level, a political appointee level, an electoral election, you know, congressional candidate level, we basically have a Republican Party full of Susan Collinses. But nonetheless, because of the way the left is oriented, they'll treat a Susan Collins as a Nazi, like a real Nazi, like someone like me, like, like a real, like, you know, when I say Nazi, I mean like conservative, that, that that's what they view as, as Nazi in their mind. So, you know, in their mind, anyone who's in their way is the devil. So you could have a Susan Collins person that kisses up to their agenda their whole life. But, you know, if you're in their way and they want their guy, you may as well be Jesse Helms. It doesn't matter. So we have this whole fight, but what are we even fighting over? The Overton window is moving to the left inexorably every day, and we get nothing. Anyway, I went overtime, but I, I just want to get to this case. Perfect example of how the left is successfully enmeshing everything they want to do in a, in a racial agenda, and it's damaging on social issues, but also economic issues. And how too many Republicans buy into it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to explain why, why it's relevant yesterday, but this is from 2017. Bank of America Corp v. City of Miami. Now, one of the things we've noted here is that the libertarian, progressive, racial pandering, phony, conservative, legal and political movement so they don't care about the homosexual agenda. They don't care about crime. They don't care about sovereignty and security. Um, that's iwi stuff. And, and yeah, you know, Daniel, you're a racist. Everyone's a racist. And they don't want to fight on that. But what we've noted is even on the libertarian economic issues, those chickens are coming home to roost because guess what? Anything related to business and free markets and poverty and welfare and regulation that is 100% enmeshed in racial identity. They're saying it's all, you're harming blacks, you're harming this group, you're harming, I mean, that's 100%. Everything economic is, is at least as enmeshed in racial politics by the left as, as so-called social issues. And so what happened was in the city of Miami sued um, 
Bank of America and all the banks and accused them of being responsible for all of their financial and social woes in the cities. They said that um, basically here's here's how it goes. I'm trying to get the um, mental gymnastics here. Um, this is the way Clarence Thomas explained what what they were trying to do. Miami's complaints do not allege that any defendant discriminated against it within the meaning of the FHA. So this was a housing issue. They're basically saying that the banks purposely did predatory lending to lend to people who couldn't afford it, and then that allowed them to foreclose, and then that allowed them to, and then, you know, the, the housing went down, and there were vacancies, and then the crime came in, which created a death spiral and then they got less revenue so they're literally charging they're, they're they're saying their their gestatiable grievance as a court case is that i think you discriminated in lending so therefore we're getting less property tax revenue because of you i mean it's unbelievable and at the time even like liberal commentators legal commentators like, like this is not going to go anywhere and indeed the um the District judge threw it out, but the 11th Circuit sided with them. And in a shocking five to three decision, this is when Scalia's seat was vacant. Vacant. Roberts um, joined with the four liberals to side with them. I mean, it was we we're like, you got to be kidding me. Standing on the merits. And, and mind you, we forced the banks into doing this. The fair lending practices. It, uh, that that Clinton signed in the, in, in the mid nineties um, that forced them into this. That said, again, this is disparate impact. Oh, you're redlining too many blacks, and now they're like you're loading to too many blacks. I mean, everything is wrapped in race. And Roberts, you know how he works. Everything is racial with him. Political correctness, and this is one of the most shocking opinions of Roberts ever that a lot of people don't know about. Bank of America Corps the uh, uh, Corp v, v City of Miami. And so basically, they in 2013, they sued Bank of America, Wells Fargo for all its woes. And they said they violated the Fair Housing Act by discriminating against blacks and Latinos. And again, it wasn't for not issuing mortgages. They said you're discriminating by issuing the mortgages. So the way Clarence Thomas explained it, he said is, Neither is Miami attempting to bring a lawsuit on behalf of its residents against whom petitioners allegedly discriminated. Rather, Miami's theory is that between 2004 and 2012, petitioners allegedly, discrimina dis allegedly discriminatory mortgage lending practi practices led to defaulted loans, which led to foreclosures, which led to vacant houses, which led to decreased poverty, decreased property values, which led to reduced property taxes and urban blight. Miami seeks damages from the lenders for reduced property tax revenues and for the cost of increased municipal services, police, firefighters, building inspectors, debris collectors, and others deployed to attend the blighted areas. This would sound funny if it weren't serious, but with Robert signing with them, that opened up a Pandora's box that every blue city that is now a cesspool because of sanctuary cities, because of criminal justice deform, because of socialism, they could all now pass that down to um to uh to, to to businesses. And it's not just on on lending. Once you set the precedent that you could get standing for such scattershot, speculative, insane grievances and pin it on a company, that has bearings on the global warming agenda, where they're now, I mean, a Baltimore federal judge just gave standing to sue against a bunch of companies the few that are remaining in the area for for global warming this is a huge problem so anyway they they you know they sided with the 11th circuit and made the trial court now go back and consider this stuff so it's been go going on the last two years and you would think after this much vaunted Supreme conservative Supreme Court with all these people, all the work of the Federalist Society at the forget about Roe v. Wade, forget about all the election laws and all the like one man, one vote and all the crazy stuff from the 1960s. You would expect that at least the most insane. Frivolous, but dangerous lawsuits against 
companies from just two years ago we'd be able to overturn. Yesterday, the Supreme Court denied the, um, the petition to appeal this and, 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 and end it. Now, I don't have evidence that anyone other than Roberts screwed us, it, I, but, but the thing is, we don't know. Of course, it should be good on something like this, you would think. Kavanaugh, I don't know. I've, but that in itself is a problem, that we can't even be certain about him on this issue. Remember, it takes four to bring up a case, but, but just because they don't bring it up, it doesn't necessarily mean four didn't agree. In other words, it could be that they know that Roberts is still ironclad in his thinking, so it, they're not going to waste their time. They just don't have the vote, so they're not going to bring it up. I, we just don't know. But I'm just telling you, we're nowhere close to making headway even on cases like this. Why? One of the major reasons is because they are scared of being called a racist. So we're all socialists now because I don't want to be a racist. We are all for transgender or whatever because I don't want to be called a hater of the sacred um, sexual alphabet soup uh, acronym. I'm going to be pro-criminal because I don't want to be called a racist. I'm going to be pro-open borders because I don't want to be called a racist. The Democrats know this. But most Republicans and, and phony conservatives, whether they're in the conservative media, whether they're in Congress, whether they're in state legislators, whether they are in the administration, this is how they think. This is their kryptonite. And until we end this, friends, we're not going to go anywhere. We're not going to save our civilization. And frankly... That is why I just can't get hyped up about impeachment, because this stuff is destroying our civilization economy. I mean, you look at the economy. We're at 1.9% growth now with a record job market. When have we ever had 3.6% unemployment and 1.9% GDP growth? Never. If you juxtapose the two going back to World, World War II, we've never had that. It always had at least 3% growth, if not 4, 5, 6%. We've never had this. It's the debt, it's the socialism, it's the spending. We've talked about that a lot, but it's things like this too. We talk about taxation and regulation, but frivolous lawsuits, I mean, it, there's some estimates it costs the economy a trillion dollars a year. But it's not because of economics, some sort of economic theory that's taking them down. It is all race. At some point, you've got to grab the bull by the horn Make the best arguments you can, the most truthful arguments you can, in the most respectful way, and let the chips fall where they are. And you know what? It's not working out too bad for Ron DeSantis with a 71% approval rating, 72% approval rating with Hispanics, even though he shares our views on immigration and crime. Republicans are not just morally and intellectually bankrupt in their way of thinking and giving in to the Democrats, they're politically stupid too. Tomorrow, hopefully, we're going to try to have another special guest on. Send me your comments, questions, and concerns at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Please subscribe to our show. Um, if you are listening through iTunes, I know a lot of you are traditionalists like me. I'm, I'm not much of a YouTube guy either, but you need to see the videos because sometimes we have good videos um, or graphics that you, you, you'll want to see. Share it with your friends. Make this stuff go viral. People need to hear the truth. Because frankly, I don't know where else they're going to get it from. Till tomorrow, God bless you all.